Hello and welcome to the On-Call Consults in Less Than 10 Minute series on ENT in a Nutshell, a complement to Hedmer's online survival guide. I'm your host, Will Dattar, and today we're joined by Dr. Kendall Tashi, a board-certified head and neck surgeon. In this episode, we will cover sentinel bleeds and carotid blowout. Let's jump right in. Bleeding or hemorrhage in the head and neck cancer patient is an urgent situation that is encountered not infrequently at tertiary care centers. These patients should be evaluated thoroughly to determine the site and source of bleeding. Since a more limited sentinel bleed can be a harbinger of a larger bleed, even if the bleeding was low volume or resolved spontaneously. Bleeding from the carotid or a carotid blowout can be categorized as threatened, impending, and as an active blowout. Beyond carotid blowout, significant or even fatal bleeding may occur from the high flow branches off the carotid system, such as the lingual artery, as well as the jugular vein, or from a tumor vessel directly. Principles of management for these events include appropriate triage, thorough examination, identifying patients at risk for potentially catastrophic bleeding, and prophylactic treatments when appropriate. Treatment typically involves airway management, tamponading acute bleeding if possible, and addressing problematic arterial bleeds with endovascular treatments or rarely surgical ligation. Dr. Tashi, can you give us a differential for these bleeds? Sure. Certainly, the patient context should be considered. For example, the differential for a bleeding patient is different if the patient was involved in a trauma versus a patient who had recent surgery or recent upper aerodigestive tract instrumentation versus a patient who has a known head and neck cancer, which will be the focus of this discussion. Uh, The site of bleeding can also help narrow the differential as well. Often, the person calling you for help can give you some sense of where the bleeding is coming from. Uh, Depending on the source of the bleeding and the patient's story, this can help narrow the differential. Potential sources of bleeding in the head and neck cancer patient include tracheostomy site bleeding, where often the culprit here is granulation tissue that is around the stoma, which will bleed easily with even minor manipulation, or tumor bleeding. Uh, Tumors can be friable and, like granulation tissue, bleed with minor manipulation or spontaneously. In the setting of smaller tumors, without invasion near the deeper structures of the neck, this will often be more self-limited as the vessels are smaller in caliber. The more feared types of bleeding in head and neck cancer patients are major bleeds, which can be caused by tumor proximity or involvement of major blood vessels in the neck, including the carotid artery or branches of the external carotid. In tracheostomy patients, uh, major bleeding can occur from the innominate artery, often from pressure necrosis or proximity of the trach tube near the innominate, resulting in a tracheoinominate fistula. Can you describe some of the risk factors and predisposing conditions? Yeah, so risk factors for major bleeds in head and neck patients include anything that compromises the vasovasorum or adventitia of the carotid artery and its branches. The big factors here will be recurrent or residual tumor nearby, inflammation related to an ongoing pharyngocutaneous fistula and saliva, um, or recent surgery nearby, all of which can directly weaken the walls of nearby blood vessels. Other contributing factors include a history of radiation to the area, malnutrition, diabetes, immune compromise, and anticoagulation or coagulopathy. And Dr. Tashi, what are the key supplies that you bring to these consults? Probably the most important things to have are a headlight, an airway cart, and some form of packing available. An airway cart typically will allow access to a variety of endotracheal tubes as well as a tracheotomy tray. Good packing options include things like curlix rolls or vaginal packing. In most hospital locations, a suction with Yankauer tips can be set up at the patient's location. Other potentially helpful items include tongue depressors and a Kelly or tonsil clamp. In cases of less dramatic bleeding, a flexible laryngoscope may be helpful in localizing the bleed and can be also used for fiber optic intubation if necessary. Adequate personal protective equipment is critical, including a mask, goggles, or face shield, gloves, and a gown. And can you describe your management starting with the case of a large volume active bleeding situation? 
Uh, one of the first things that should be done is to have someone activate the rapid response or medical emergency team. The last thing you want is to not have enough help in these situations. Nurses or others can be working on obtaining two large bore IVs, obtaining an airway or crash cart, and ensuring the patient is hooked up to monitoring. Most hospitals will have a massive transfusion protocol in place that can be activated. Assuming you're not standing next to the patient when the bleeding happens, this can all be happening while you're en route to the patient. On arrival, you should start with the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. In upper, arrow, upper airway aerodigestive hemorrhage, mortality is primarily related to asphyxiation from blood within the airway rather than hypovolemic shock. Therefore, it should be a priority to secure the airway early. If the bleeding is emanating from the mouth and nose in a non-tracheotomized patient who is conscious, the patient should be kept upright with access to suctions in, to aid in protecting the airway. If possible, an examination to determine the source of bleeding can be performed with an oral and scope examination, but this should be reserved for cases when there is not massive bleeding. In a patient who is actively decompensating and unable to protect their airway, intubation at the bedside may be necessary, though for a patient who is able to protect their airway, often transport to the operating room for intubation in a more controlled setting is preferable. Discussion with the rapid response team or anesthesia team can help determine the best approach for intubation or whether to forego intubation in favor of a surgical airway. For example, in patients with significant trismus, oral intubation may be significantly more difficult and a flexible fiber optic nasotracheal intubation may be preferred. If at any point an airway cannot be secured via oral or nasotracheal intubation, a cricothyrotomy or tracheotomy should be performed. Once the airway is secure, throat packing can be placed tightly using a Kelly clamp to hold pressure on the source. Typically, the next steps may include direct laryngoscopy in the operating room versus transfer to the interventional radiology suite for in embolization. In a patient with a tracheostomy or a laryngectomy stoma, airway management is usually easier. If the patient has a cuffless trach tube or laryngectomy stent in place, it should be removed and placed with either a cuffed trach tube or a cuffed endotracheal tube with the cuff inflated to prevent blood from getting into the lungs. In the setting of an external bleed, such as bleeding from the neck, attempts should be made to place pressure specifically at the site of bleeding. If there's a neck incision, opening the incision at the bedside and evacuating clot can help relieve pressure on the airway and may allow more precise pressure on the bleeding source. Generally, during any major bleed, in, a in the background, a colleague should work on arranging for immediate transport to the operating room for surgical exploration, whether by direct laryngoscopy or neck exploration, or notifying the interventional radiology team for transport to the IR suite and embolization based on the patient's stability in the facility's capabilities. So Dr. Tashi, can you now describe the management of cases with either low volume bleeding or bleeding that has resolved? Yeah, so in these cases, you typically have more time to spend looking for a potential source, though bear in mind that true sentinel bleeds may present uh, small prior to a major bleed. All patients should be assessed regardless. It's possible that consulting providers may have low level of concern or underestimate the potential severity, and so all patients should be assessed urgently. Uh, complete history should be obtained uh, with attention to the patient's oncologic history and prior cancer treatments and timeline, as well as anticoagulation status. A complete head and neck examination should be performed, including nasopharyngoscopy, with attention to trying to determine a source of bleeding. Internally, anything that does not look like intact, pink, shiny mucosa is potentially the site of bleeding. This includes things like tumor, granulation tissue or eroded or devitalized appearing areas. Depending on whether a source is identified or not, a CT angiogram can be obtained to look for sites, though it may be limited in the absence of active extravasation. In most cases that are not in the immediate postoperative setting, an interventional radiology consult is warranted for angiography and potential embolization. Especially in the case of tumor bleeding, surgical intervention with cauterization of the tumor is not likely to be helpful. If no bleeding is identified on examination, imaging, or angiography, a period of observation in the hospital is warranted, as well as consideration for a surgical airway, especially in cases where there have been multiple bleeds. And what labs and imaging do you consider? 
in the acute setting of a major bleed, imaging really does not have a role in management until the patient is stabilized. Um, labs are really only helpful in this setting for a type and screen. After major bleeding has stopped, if the underlying issue has not been definitively managed, then obtaining a CT angiogram can be considered. Follow-up labs, including a, a hematocrit and hemoglobin, can be considered to determine whether additional blood transfusion may be needed. And once the bleeding has resolved, what instructions do you give the patient and their care team? Again, unless the source of bleeding has been definitively dealt with, there is a risk of re-bleeding. A plan should be put in place about what the next steps will be based on the patient's and family's wishes uh, and the site of bleeding uh, should re-bleeding occur. And what disposition do you recommend for these patients? Yeah, if the patient is extremely low risk for recurrent bleeding based on history exam and imaging, such as minor granulation tissue, bleeding around a trach site or minor tumor bleeding, you can consider overnight observation and discharge home if no re-bleeding has occurred. If the patient is at high or moderate risk for re-bleeding or carotid blowout, uh, the patient should be admitted to the floor or to the ICU as indicated based on the patient's overall status. Thanks, Dr. Tashi. So that concludes our episode on sentinel bleed and carotid blowout. Thanks for listening. 